The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't talk about Star Wars. Ah! My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And everybody calls me Bibbs. So it's very confusing when we're together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is the show. This is our second episode of Episode Zero. And if you missed last week or if you're just joining us, uh, the idea behind Episode Zero is that there are a lot of podcasts that talk about Star Wars, but they tend to talk about... Star Wars movies. uh, As as they are today. As they are today. They tend to talk about uh, the Star Wars movies that we've seen, that we loved or hated. Uh, They talk about the future of Star Wars and the expanded universe of Star Wars. But we wanted to do a podcast where we talk about the prehistory of Star Wars. The the path that led to Star Wars. Yeah, so if The Phantom Menace is episode one, we're talking about episode zero. These are all the movies that directly inspired Star Wars, without which Star Wars wouldn't be Star Wars. It might exist, but it would be a very different thing. Mm. So we started off last week with the Flash Gordon serials from the 1930s, from which George Lucas borrowed liberally. (laughs) Well, as we explained in that episode, he was on the... On the make to make a Flash Gordon feature film just straight. Yeah, that was the original plan. He was just going to adapt Flash like, Gordon to film, but yeah. he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, so he did his own Flash Gordon-like thing. Yep. And that was Star Wars. And uh, when he wrote his first draft with Star Wars, he realized something is missing. Something needs to the change. And the change was inspired by Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. And for a rousing action-adventure epic, discover the Hidden Fortress. A young, feisty princess must escape through enemy territory with the royal treasure to restore her shattered kingdom. She is led through adventure against impossible odds by two bumbling, greedy peasants and a valiant, crafty general played by the legendary Toshiro Mufumi. Harry Ricky of the Boston Herald tells us the acknowledged inspiration for Star Wars, The Hidden Fortress, is earthly fun that easily surpasses Lucas' trilogy. Okay. The Hidden Fortress is one of Akira Kurosawa's several samurai epics. But unlike something like Seven Samurai, which was uh, very, like, novel in its approach to storytelling and almost every level... And unlike uh, Yojimbo and Sanjiro, which are uh, very dark and moody and uh, very cynical in a mm. lot of ways, The Hidden Fortress is a really good time. It's just a <laughs> well, fun adventure movie, more so than I think anything else he's ever done. Uh, 
and in fact, that was his goal. Yep. Uh, if, if you look up the history of the Hidden Fortress, um, Kurosawa had a big hit with Seven Samurai, and the films that immediately followed it. Uh, Se- Seven Samurai came out in '54, mm-hmm. and the films that immediately followed it weren't as big hits. They weren't big samurai epics in the same way. And I think Kuros- and Kurosawa even openly said he wanted to get back to something a little bit more just conventionally entertaining. Well, he fu- I, the, the story that I heard was that he sort of felt like he owed it to the studio because they took a chance on so many risky projects that didn't quite at least pan out financially. Yeah. So he wanted to do basically, it's a system we call today, one for you, one for me. Yeah, pretty Where much. a filmmaker will make maybe a, a daring or challenging or unusual picture, mm-hmm. but then just to make sure they stay in everyone's good graces, Guy Ritchie will also do Aladdin. Right. You know, just so, um, just so that everyone's making money, everyone's happy, cool, now I get to do my own my own thing. So just, just to give you a little bit of a timeline, uh, in 1954, uh, he, uh, Kurosawa made Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. which is often considered his masterwork. Uh, Change I, cinema as we know it's, it. It's one of those linchpin films. Of, it kind of invented action movies as we think of them today. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot then, of visual storytelling that we take for granted today was pioneered in that film. It's really important. He followed it up with a film called I Live in Fear, which is about... Uh, an elderly man played by Tashiro Mifune, who was not elderly at the time, but played an elderly man without makeup. Oh. He just sort of like changed his gait and his expression to make himself look older, and they dressed okay. him in an old I haven't seen costumes. this one. That's interesting. And it was about how he was essentially trying to do everything he could to protect his family from another atomic bomb. Hence the title, I Live in Fear. Ah. Uh, and yeah, it's very modern, very up to date, uh, very kind of hard-hitting and, and Confrontational. cold about yeah. sort of the state of Japan at the time. Uh, he followed up I Live in Fear with Throne of Blood, mm-hmm. which was his Macbeth adaptation. So it's another samurai film, but it's really dark and gory. Arty as well. Uh, it, and yeah, and also very arch. Um, the way the Macbeth character dies in that movie is spectacular. I've seen that clip. I've actually never seen Throne of Blood. Oh, you haven't seen Throne of Blood? Oh, yeah, Thro- well, Throne of Blood is of excellent, but yeah, uh, yeah the, you, if you've seen anything of Throne of Blood, you've seen that clip where the character dies over the course of a couple minutes. It takes some time. Yeah. <laughs> then he did a film called The Lower Depths, which I haven't seen. Uh, it's based on a Maxim Gorky play. Um, yep. And then he did, uh, and yeah, those three were like sort of challenging, a little bit more intimate, or a little bit more ambitious artistically. And it was in uh, 1958 that he finally came back with The Hidden Fortress, which is, yeah, this two two and a half hour, more or less street adventure story. Yeah, now, it's not like it's about nothing when people talk about, oh, movies didn't used to be political. No, it's still Akira Kurosawa. There's still a lot of thought that went into this, and a lot of Mm -hmm. themes that are explored throughout the film, but... On basically, it's trying to entertain you. It is briskly paced. It is full of heroic adventure and fights and chases and mistaken identity yeah. and wacky and comic sidekick characters. It's Kurosawa's funniest movie. Yeah, probably. I mean, he didn't make comedies, he but didn't really this, make this a lot one of, has like a lot of yuck yucks. Like the main characters are the comedic sidekicks. Well, and that's actually the big thing that influenced Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas had written a draft of Star Wars, which was yeah about you know like an old master Jedi rescuing a princess, and it was all very adventurous. But at some point, George Lucas realized that there's just something that doesn't feel very human about it, and then he thought of the movie Hidden Fortress, and he realized what I need to do is what Akira Kurosawa did. In Hidden Fortress. I'm going to take this giant action epic and I'm going to tell it from the perspective 
of the lowliest characters. So in The Hidden Fortress, even though Toshiro Mifune plays a brave uh, brave samurai, mm-hmm. even though there is a princess who needs to be protected and rescued, and gold that needs to yeah, be transferred he's, across he's, enemy he's the, lines. Uh, he's the brave general of a fallen clan, yeah. and yeah, the hidden princess is like a brave warrior into her, uh, into her own right. And, yeah, yeah. It, there's all of this action and adventure, but the protagonists are a couple of greedy, stupid... <laughs> Sure, slovenly, slovenly uh, uh, poppers mm-hmm. who uh, we learn at the beginning of the movie uh, they sold their homes for weapons and armor so that they can go off to war and make their fortune. Mm. They arrive to the war late, they are mistaken for the opposite side and are forced <laughs> to be prisoners of war and dig graves for everybody. And then they escape and they end up on one horrible misadventure that horrifically abuses them after the last. Mm. And the thing is, as we see in the Hidden Fortress, these guys kind of deserve everything they get. They're total jerks. And, and they are they are trapped by their own stupidity. It's yeah. like, oh well, shit, we got caught again. Oh look, we can steal some gold. That's a great idea when you've just captured and you're a prisoner and you're yeah. being forced to work. Yeah, they're just and so they're like they're like my cats. Like they're just all I can see is oh, there they, might be food on the counter. They're, Doesn't they're matter. Greedy, <laughs> impulsive slobs, and they're hilarious. They are Shaggy yeah. and Scooby, but they're both Shaggy. Yeah. Now, uh, when George Lucas did this in Star Wars, he made them into the droids: C three PO and R two D two. And they are, they don't actually deserve their fate. They don't deserve all the crap that befalls them Hmm. in Star Wars. They're, you know, they're good guys. But the actual structure of the original Star Wars, Episode 4, and the Hidden Fortress is very similar right at the beginning because there's a whole lot of war and action, but we just follow these droids, they escape a war. They run away. They actually split up for a while, and then they're both recaptured by the exact same people <laughs> and brought into the exact same thing, and they're forced to do manual labor. Then they're like, they escape. These are this is all in Hidden Fortress. Uh, the opening shot of uh, Star Wars is like we see a ship, and then we see the big ship chasing it, and, yeah. and then we cut to the interior of that spaceship, and it's the two androids. Yeah, or, excuse me, the droids. Yeah, androids. I know there's a difference now. Yeah, uh, yeah. There are other people the, fighting, but the droids the two, are our attention. Cuts to the two droids, and we're introduced to some other characters, and prince, we introduce to the princess and the, the the black knight right away. But then uh, there's a long portion of the original Star Wars where it's just those two characters wandering through the desert, mm-hmm. completely alone, before they are beset by droid thieves. Yeah, we and, don't uh, meet Luke Skywalker for a while. For a while. That's an odd mm. approach to any movie. The first shot of the Hidden Fortress is those two guys out in a big open field. It's essentially a desert. Yeah. And, and, and the way that uh, uh, Japan looks in the Hidden Fortress, and it takes place in feudal Japan, and actually, from what I've gathered, the history of it is, it's kind of made-up history. The it's, clans it's, yeah, the, that are at war and the thing would never have been at war at that exact time. Yeah. They barely existed at the same time period. It's all fictionalized. It's all for fun. But in Akira Kurosawa's portrayal of a war-torn Japan, everything is really desolate. It's got this mm. like post-apocalyptic... Uh, uh, sort well, of feel to it where the, everything is dead and arid whenever and rocky. We, whenever we pass through a city, it's been completely ravaged. Uh, there's yeah. always shots of people uh, wandering by with just carts of their gather their belongings. Yeah, just sort of they're clearly like they've been displaced. Yeah, they're they're just moving from one place to the next now. Yeah, uh, yeah the whole world has been shaken asunder by the wars. The the there's this but, one. Yeah, uh, sorry. 
the, no, the, but the war itself, although that's Kurosawa's commentary that war ravages the, the landscape, mm-hmm. he's not here to see the heroes rescue it or mourn the land's passing, which he's done before in sure. other... Um, in, in something like Seven Samurai, that is about heroism at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at something like Ron, that is about how war just ravages everything. And yeah. we get to see these wonderful shots of just the battles tearing everything apart. Because we're with the comic sidekicks, it's almost like a little wink. The, like, the opening like, of this movie is like, very war, playful. War, war, is, war is pretty bad, huh? I, but we know why we're here. Yeah, yeah we we're know here, we're all here, we're here to have to, some fun. We're here to have fun and see fighting. Well, the opening sequence is, this is one of the things I love about the, the just the opening shots. Mm. Of the Hidden Fortress <laughs> is we've we've got our two uh, bumbling heroes whose names are uh, I apologize I'm bad uh, with names Chiaki and um, uh, no. oh no sorry Minoru Chiaki plays Tahe yeah uh, there's Tahe and there's um, Matashichi yeah so Tahe and Matashichi mm. they have just escaped from their grave digging they're miserable they're bedraggled they hate each other their armor doesn't fit yeah, yeah they're they clearly fighting stole each other. it from somebody yeah they can't stand to be around each other any longer they, they're blaming each other for this situation and then from behind and the whole shot it's kind of like a lot of like 1917 is shot where the camera is just kind of floating behind them mm-hmm. as they are walking into the background and we're just sort of following them along like we're the third person in their little tiny caravan and yeah. they're just walking miserable walking and then from behind us a samurai runs in screaming in terror and then a whole bunch of other samurais come mm. in and kill that guy and then they just walk on like nothing ever happened and, and, and ignore and he, our heroes and the, the samurai falls on the ground his hands are like clawed um, the, the, yeah. op- the opening shots are actually really iconic in this movie and they're really important to pay attention to because they show um, you the focus like yeah there's war it's back there we're not well, focusing on these guys also um this is something that I think George Lucas might have picked up on without even really realizing it. Hmm. But there's something really kind of boldly artificial about the Hidden Fortress. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Well, I think George Lucas was attracted to that. A lot of his yeah, other... Yeah. Influence. But, Flash and, Gordon is exceptionally artificial. Th- this is true, in but... its I'm, tone and in its... I'm, I'm talking about in... Yeah, just in terms of... Because, yeah, there's we have this guy who like dies in a fake sort of way. But there's this use of the camera. And this is something we discussed in film school a lot. Oh. Where, uh, because... and. We actually discussed the opening scenes of The Hidden Fortress and, and how it relates to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Sergio Leone was also deeply influenced by this movie about how nothing exists in a movie until it's on camera. Yeah. Now, we see our our two slovenly heroes wandering across a field when a guy kind of staggers into frame and they spin around and they see him the same time we do. They would They're have in a known huge he was here. field. Yeah. They would have seen him like 30 minutes before. They would have heard the horses yeah. and the samurai chasing after them, but because, but yeah, it's playful. It's a mm. trick. It's yeah, a yeah. trick we're playing on the and audience. I, and I think and Kurosawa is clearly now no knows that he's playing a trick on the audience mm. a little bit. And I think George Lucas Look at the opening shot of Star Wars. We see the little ship, and then we see some blasts go by, and then there's that big cheese wedge comes in from the, yeah. the top of the screen. And it's ignor- It's like yeah. unbelievably yeah, enormous. Yeah, it just keeps on like, going. Yeah. It was spoofed in Spaceballs. Like, the ship just kept on going for, like, literally three minutes. I uh, had this I had this joke in my head that mm-hmm. when I rewatched Spaceballs as an adult, I realized it was just in my head, uh-huh. was, like, that ship going and kept going and uh-huh. kept going, and then there'd be a sign that just said, Big, ain't it? And it would just keep going. <laughs> well, that, that, that's a Tex Avery joke. I yeah. know, yeah. Um... But uh, it's actually interesting. George Lucas uh, has talked about 
Kurosawa's influence on his movies, and he's mm-hmm. talked about The Hidden Fortress in particular. In fact, there's actually a, a like a ten minute interview with George mm-hmm. Lucas on yes. the Criterion Blu-ray of this. Yeah. It's not on the DVD. I had to go onto the Criterion oh, no. channel to see that intro. Okay. Um, well, in any case, uh, George Lucas is talking about this film, and he talks about how when he where he was growing up, they didn't get foreign films. Mm-hmm. They only got whatever was big in America. Because he's in small town in Northern California. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't discover the works of Akira Kurosawa until he went to film school. And this is something we talked about Mm. uh, last week where uh, George Lucas and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius and Peter Bogdanovich and all of these filmmakers who redefined cinema in the seventies, they were kind of like the cahier du cinema, French new wave guys. They were actually inspired on like a nerdy, Artistic like level, they're the film school generations, the ones who studied. Yeah, yeah. and they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they were. They were very specifically inspired by their predecessors in the art form. And George Lucas discovered Akira Kurosawa in film school, and I, for at, me, that, at the behest of John Milius. Yep, he was friends with John Milius in film school. John yeah. Milius, who did uh, Conan the Barbarian and other and, uh, movies. Red Dawn and a bunch of other things. Uh, he also do like Entrapment or The 13th Warrior. He did a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so when I think about how George Lucas's films are inspired by Kurosawa versus how they're inspired by Flash Gordon, mm. I feel like George Lucas's inspiration from Flash Gordon is very innate and yeah, childlike. Man. And I feel like his influence from Kurosawa is more right-brained. Mm. And he's more thinking about like, well, how would Kira Kurosawa tackle this? Mm. Whereas Flash Gordon is just like in him. And he's going to do that anyway. So he started off with something very Flash Gordon-y, and then he was just like... There's that great line in the movie Heist, uh, directed by David Mamet. Mm. Uh, stars Gene Hackman as a world-class thief. It's one of my favorite crime movies, and I highly recommend it to anybody. But there's a great line in that movie where someone asks Gene Hackman, mm. how do you come up with all these brilliant heists? Mm. And Gene Hackman says, well, I try to think of a fellow smarter than me, and then I ask myself, what would he do? And that's great advice, actually. It's just good. What would someone? I won't ha- I can't. I can't do this thing. Well, what would someone smarter than me do? I don't know. Look it up. Great. <laughs> that's what I should do. That's that's actually a spin on a biblical passage. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know that one. Uh, I I can't. I'm not a biblical scholar. I can't okay. call it to mind. But yeah, well, I know, I know it's de- derived from something. In the so Bible. he consciously <laughs> chose to evoke Akira Kurosawa here, and you can really tell why. But what's actually kind of interesting as you watch The Hidden Fortress mm-hmm. through the lens of Star Wars, not think of Hidden Fortress of when it came out, which I want to talk about as well, and then 20 years later, Star Wars came out. But let's look back through Star Wars and view Hidden Fortress through that veil. You see two things. One, the whole perspective of the franchise, I think, mm-hmm. was always better when it was from the perspective of the droids. Like when we shifted to Luke, it became not, not quite as good? Well, or? Luke was fine because he was part of an ensemble by that point. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the main trilogy keeps the droids in focus. But like Phantom Menace, but we, we, C-3PO isn't in most of that. Well, and it's a different vibe. He was built in that one. Yeah, like it's so. just these, they're not the focus anymore. They're mm-hmm. not the focus in episode three. They're not the focus mm-hmm. in the new trilogy. Yeah. So well, some, I just feel like people... it's a different vibe. It's basically like the important people are important. Mm-hmm. Whereas Star Wars used to say the unimportant people are important. Yeah. Well, and, and that was kind of the appeal of Star Wars. Everything was used and lived in by yeah. everyone. It wasn't about just a few characters traversing through a perfect world. But the other thing I think you notice is that although that 
the idea of telling the story from the like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the people who represent the proletariat, the hoi polloi, mm. uh, that was a big influence in the original trilogy. Structurally, Hidden Fortress actually had a way bigger influence on The Phantom Menace, because mm. The Phantom Menace is about uh, an older heroic Jedi teaming up with a buffoon, Jar Jar Binks, mm. to help smuggle a princess out of a war zone and then they keep getting distracted (laughs) by different adventures so basically you take hidden fortress but instead of all the sequences where they'll have to like hide out at a fire festival Mm. or one of these other side adventures that they go on you just put the chariot race from (laughs) ben-hur and that's phantom menace yeah more or less um I, I like the structure of the Hidden Fortress more than I like the structure of Star Wars yeah. because I feel like it takes us. Uh, I mean, in screen time, it's probably about the same, but it's a longer film, so I feel like we spend more time with uh, the two slovenly buffoon characters. Mm-hmm. And their series of adventures before we even get to know what this story is really about. Well, it's not even that. And I feel, that. Like, if, I feel if like if there was maybe if if Star Wars were like a three hour film, mm. if there was like a whole extra hour of footage, and there was a lot more right at the beginning. Like they don't just land on the desert planet; they essentially have the TV series like a an arc from the TV series droids before they even get to Luke. Yeah. That would be weirdly more satisfying because it, it's more episodic in that sort of Flash Gordony way, and it also is much more reminiscent of this grander adventure that the Hidden Fortress was alluding to through the eyes of these characters. Well, I feel like what George Lucas kind of did, mm. and I think at its best, I think the original Star Wars does this real, real well. Mm. I think Empire does it okay. I think Return of the Jedi actually does it really quite well. Mm. Uh, is he has trouble he, he you need to keep the droids at the center of the action even if they're not the emotional crux of the story all the time. Yeah. In Star Wars, when the droids meet the young adventurer and the great old warrior mm. and they go off to save the princess and everything, Luke becomes the protagonist. In the Hidden Fortress, these these dumbasses never stop being the protagonist. Even when they meet Tashira Mufun, he is mm. Brave and heroic and awesome, but he doesn't have anywhere to grow. He's just cool, and he has to use these morons in order to save the gold, save the princess, preserve his clan after they have just lost a horrible war. I feel like... Uh, so so just, yeah. that's why it feels like it's longer. Mm. It's because these characters stay front and center longer, even yeah. after they meet other characters. I, I suppose that's, that's probably the case. Um, I feel like... In this one and in other Kurosawa films, uh, Seven Samurai especially. Mm. Uh, in Seven Samurai, this is it, it's a little bit of a switch around because in Seven Samurai, most of the characters are actually very dignified, and it's the Mafune character who's the buffoon, and this time Mafune is the the really stead, mm-hmm. honorable character. Yeah, if you look at the original, and, if you look at Seven <clears throat> Samurai, uh, he's the one who actually isn't a samurai. He has found a samurai sword. The samurai sword is clearly for a bigger man than he is. Like, he can barely wield it. Yeah. And he's the one who wants to become a samurai. And in order to do that, he's as boisterous and as loud as he can possibly be. Hmm. And, yeah, he's like the James Dean of that cast. (laughs) He's just young and hunky and brash and Hmm. full of beans. And, yeah, here... 
he's. I don't even. He's more like the James Caan of the cast because well, there, there, there was like a cute, uh, like a cute younger samurai dude too. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just no. Uh, but he's 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 the the stalwart mm-hmm. hero. But a different I, kind I, of hero. I feel like if it was the sixth samurai and it was just the dignified characters, they'd go about their sort of dignified adventure. Mm-hmm. But they kind of they're pulling this guy along kind of reluctantly. It's like he almost belongs in a different type of movie, and he throws mm-hmm. in these sort of brash ideas. It's like no, no, we must reject your. Wait a minute, that was pretty good. Uh, and I feel like the same thing happened with Mifune and the Hidden Fortress. These two buffoonish characters come in, oh no, we're being captured and we're clearly slobby and we have no business being here. And I feel like if they weren't in uh, the general story, let me look up the general's name, the Mifune character. Oh, uh, it's uh, General uh, Rokuroto Makabe. Ro- Rokuroto. Uh, Rokuroto. Um, Rokurota. Rokurota. If they weren't in uh, Rokurota's story, he would actually have some sort of big, bold, brash adventure where he's freeing the princess and mm-hmm. you know reclaiming the throne and all the rest. These wild cards are almost like this weird infection in his world. They wandered in from the wrong movie. Oh no, we're complete slobs. And it's like, they're not just there to watch things because he actually starts taking their advice. It's like, yeah, we're going to get some gold. No, we're not going to, well, actually that's a good idea. He listens to them for a second. Every once in a while, that's actually, a that, that gold thing is actually interesting. Well, what they happen. So yeah, there, they add a little bit of humor and chaos to an otherwise really serious war story. And a very straightforward war story yeah. in a lot of ways. So let's talk a little let's talk us through the plot a little well, bit and well, get can, to that can point. Can I can I continue to extrapolate? Oh I'm sorry, because, I thought you were, I thought well, you had. Well, because I was going to relate that to Star Wars. Oh my bad. Um I don't, well, and I was going to ask, do you think that C three PO and R two D two bring that same sort of monkey wrench? No. But they do because R two D two has the recording in his head, right? And he, that's the only thing that sort of alerts Luke to the bigger adventure. But that's an exci- that's an inciting incident. Uh, yeah, After so. that, they, they're simply useful mm. or maybe mildly annoying. But mm. like they're performing their function, they're doing what they do. C three PO is translating mm. things. R two D two is a mechanic. Like and it would be as yeah. if, if C three PO and R two D two never met Luke. They just went straight to Obi Wan. Yeah. And like he's the wise sage who's like I'm biting my time. I'm going to go do this thing. Oh wait, that's actually a cool. I've thing thought about this before. I wonder if Obi Wan would have even recruited Luke if they had just found Obi Wan first. Probably not. I don't know. Who can? Who's to say? But um, anyway, well, I mean, that, that's what they were looking for. They just found Luke by accident. Because remember, yeah. she says, and of course, um, Obi Wan was there to look after Luke. From afar. From afar. And he is old enough, he's actually past the age where he Did, should be training to be a Jedi. Is, so. is, is that established in Star Wars, or is that not established till like, the That like, Obi-Wan the was there to look after Luke? Yeah, I think that it's they, implied. That, that he was put, like, on the same planet to make sure Luke was okay. Because we actually didn't know any... We didn't... That whole Luke is Darth Vader's son thing didn't mm. come about until the, the second movie. No, that's true. I think it's implied. I think it's pretty. Okay. I, I don't think it's a logical. I don't, I don't I remember like, if there's any I think like, little makes, details. It's, it's made 100 percent evident in the prequels. Mm. I don't recall if it's ever explicitly said mm. in the original trilogy. However, it seems pretty clear once you find out that Luke is Darth Vader's son. Okay. Um, in any case, uh, let's let's walk through the plot a little bit. All right. Um, so. Uh, they split up because they hate each other. They both get captured by the same people, <laughs> and they're put in manual labor again. Next, they, next to each other, yeah. and then they escape again, mm. and then they're stuck together again, and they hate each other again. And well, they, and they can't even light a fire right this time. Ah, this wood doesn't burn for shit. And they throw it a stick, one of the sticks of wood away, and then it goes. And they're like, what doesn't do that? And then that's when they realize that hidden inside this wood is the gold 
from the fallen clan that just lost the war, the gold that they had just been like enlisted as prisoners of war to search for. Mm. It's hidden in sticks all around this canyon. And, of course, they're going, well, got to get all the sticks. Oh, that's my stick. That's your stick. My stick. Ah, we'll share it 50-50. Which, no. Which is a, a little layer of absurdity. It's like, who took all the time to hide the gold in a bunch of sticks and then yeah. scatter them about? Well, we'll find that out in mm. a second. While they are arguing over who's going to own the most sticks, mm. a mysterious figure shows up in the distance. And, of course, it's Tashira Mifun. And they go, oh. Shut up about the gold. Um, well, I guess we'd better walk in this direction for a while. And they just walk away, and Tashirmafoon follows them, and eventually they think they lost him. And then Tashirmafoon shows up at their campfire, and they start kind of talking. They don't actually put all their cards on the table, but Tashirmafoon is able to get out of them, what are these guys doing here? Mm. Because they think Tashirmafoon wants their gold. Tashirmafoon thinks these idiots are either going to reveal the location of the hidden fortress and the princess that he's protecting mm. or or worse that their spies or are lookouts mm. and he finds out that they're idiots and they're idiots who have a plan and it's actually a good plan because the problem by, is by accident totally of by accident <laughs> just by chance they've stumbled into a good idea they are on the wrong side of the border they're trying to get to the right side of the border but that border is protected by the army that keeps trapping them over and over and over again <laughs> So their plan is to go through the border of a different country that this area, or a different uh, uh, district, territory, that uh, this clan is not at war with, and then go around mm. the border where it won't be as protected. So it's going the long way around, but it's the safest journey. And the German phone's just like, shit, that's a good idea. <laughs> all right, you can come He's with. Like, <laughs> I need oh. someone to carry all this gold. Really? We were doing it because we were cowards. <laughs> So the Shimafoon brings him back to his mm. hidden fortress in the mountains, and there's actually this extended sequence there where it's all a mystery as to why there's this hidden fortress. Mm. Who is this guy? We find out he's a general. Maybe he's lying about that. Who is this mysterious woman? And uh, yeah, it turns out she's the princess. He's been he's responsible he's for protecting the general, her. Yeah. He's a general responsible for protecting <laughs> her and the gold so that the clan can live on somehow. And um, constantly. These guys are just like, well, I guess he's in charge. One second later, ooh, gold! <laughs> oh, I guess he's in charge. Oh, that lady might be the princess. Well, let's let's tattle on him. Let's maybe we'll get a reward. Uh, I love the the disguise they have for the princess. Mm -hmm. Don't speak. She's she's yeah. nobility, and she would speak in a certain kind of way. And if you know anything about the Japanese language, there's a, a lot of different kinds of. Uh, extra ling lingual flourishes to uh, add formality to speech. And yeah. if she speaks, she would be pegged as a, a noblewoman right away. Yeah, she'd she be, just knows just be, your grammar is too spotted good. spotted yeah. immediately. Yeah. Uh, so they just have her not talk. Now, this the problem is she's so striking yeah. that you can tell right away anyway. Yeah, what she's thinking, what she's... Yeah, um, and I actually love her introduction to her character. We uh -huh. see her at a distance, and obviously these two young morons uh, ogle her. Mm. They don't get to do a damn thing. Good. But uh, th that's the initial reaction. But when we finally hear her speak, uh -huh. it's because these guys who thought she was the princess and tried to rat everyone out, 
they come back all depressed because, oh no, it turns out the princess was beheaded, so um, I guess that can't be her. Right. Well, we're sorry. Uh, and uh, then it turns out that they had sacrificed to Shermafoon's sister, that she had impersonated the princess hmm. in order to sacrifice herself to be beheaded in her place so that it would be easier for the princess to escape. What an incredible sacrifice. And the princess says, you did what? <laughs> that is fucked up. I would never ask anyone to do that. And even though the implication is that she is hot-headed, mm. that she is uh, maybe more passionate uh, than, someone, than befits someone of her stature, she is intensely moral. And mm. we want to... We want her to survive. She doesn't represent a shitty ruling class. She actually represents a, a genuine nobility. She's noble. Mm. And so is Tashira Mafun. So we're on their side. It takes a bit to get there, but once we finally hear them talk to each other, when we actually... They're not hiding anything from our, our two idiot protagonists... We realize that no, this is a story of genuine heroism, and we really do need to protect these people. You know, you're, we're we're speaking of these terms, and all of a sudden, I'm reminded of Dickens. Yeah, uh, Dickens did a lot of stories like this. You think of like his more adventurous stories, like A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, which has you know a bunch of different classes of people all coming at it from different angles. And the main sort of hero characters did have that sort of inner nobility. You know, Dickens did believe in sort of an inner morality of people. But yeah, then there were all these like kind of buffoons off to the side and also these like really horrible villains off to the side, sort of with creepy names. Yeah. yeah. So that it's it is this sort of like big melodramatic adventure story, but he was always good to put in those buffoon characters. And what's interesting about I, Hidden Fortress I is that I wonder if Kurosawa read Dickens. I wouldn't be surprised. He was yeah. very well read. He made a lot of We just uh, covered uh, his high low, high yeah. low on critically acclaimed and that was based off of an American novel. Yeah, so an Ed McBain novel. Yeah. But uh, what's interesting about Hidden Fortress is, like, in America, we're really used to seeing class divides in Western storytelling be subverted. Mm. Uh, where the rich are brought down to our level and the poor are elevated as heroic in something that would be like the works of Frank Capra, for mm. example. Uh, in Hidden Fortress, actually, all the social classes are rigidly codified. We, we meet three in particular. There's nobility. She is intensely noble and actually relatively flawless. Mm. There is the warrior class, where, yeah, there's a couple of assholes who we have to fight, but we meet two people in particular. There's uh, Toshirmafun's character, who is uh, intelligent and wise and brave and excellent in battle, and we find out that he has a rival on the other side mm -hmm. who likes him very much and respects him very much. The warrior class is also comes with its nobility, mm -hmm. and the poor people are idiots. They're slovenly, greedy, <laughs> lustful idiots. And for some reason, normally that would like ring an alarm in my brain. I'd be like, you know what? Fuck That's you. Because it's, it's not pro-rich, though. It's, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It, it's, it's got a definite different cultural angle mm. on social strata, but is also talking about social strata well, a lot of different ways. And that's something we talked about when we talked about high and low, yeah. how, how the ultra-poor are depicted as being you know vengeful and petty, whereas the... Uh, the ultra-rich are given every opportunity to redeem themselves. Yeah. All right, so uh, eventually they have to embark on their mission, and so they do. They pick up all the sticks, and they put them on horses, and uh, the princess agrees to go mute. And uh, so she, so our idiots don't know she's a princess. They think she's just some mm. lady. And uh, over the course of the film, and this is where that sort of slight undermining goes into... Um, 
she gets to experience life as someone who isn't sheltered from the world. And this is kind of an undercurrent. You know, it's, it's not like the most important thing of any given scene until a big speech at the end where we find out that if you look at it from her perspective, she's been on this Prince and the Popper journey. Mm-hmm. And she gets to see people talking to her without putting on airs. She gets to see the worst of humanity because she gets to see the best of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's this big exploration. And that's something that I really like. And that's something that... I think it's an excellent storytelling device, and I think it's something that even Star Wars does when it's at its best, is we have our protagonists, we probably have one or two people from whom we see the, the mm. film through their perspective. Yeah. I believe that the best stories, typically, are those in which if you look at the story from the perspective of any character, mm. you get a story. You get an interesting story. And I think that's true. If you look at the original Star Wars, you look at it from Luke's perspective, it's an interesting story. You look at it from Han's perspective, it's an interesting story. You look at it from Obi-Wan's perspective, every single character, except maybe like Grand Moff Tarkin, who's just doing his day job. Well, and and even Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Who at the time was just doing his job and ran into his old teacher. That's that's really dramatic. Mm. He's going through something as well. If you know enough about the characters, you see that everyone is going on a compelling journey oh, wait, throughout it, the film. In the original Star Wars, it wouldn't have been his teacher. It would have been... No, it would have been his teacher. Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan was still... Uh, uh, yeah, he said, first I was but the learner, now I am the master. Obi-Wan time. Oh, okay. oh, yeah, I guess so. And, and also Luke's father, who Darth Vader killed. Yeah. In, in the story. Yeah, I, I know, I, I know. I was, just, I was trying to keep it all straight before they kind of repurposed it. But regardless, sequel, but. regardless, when you look back and you see it from his perspective, it's his old master, they're, they were friends, mm-hmm. now they're enemies... And this battle that has been like unfinished in his head and it left Darth Vader, we eventually find out. It was that battle with Obi-Wan, their last time they saw each other, he chopped off all of Darth Vader's legs. Chopped off his arms and legs and set him on fire. And then left him to die on a volcano planet. There's some there's some leftover feelings there. <laughs> like so he's going through a lot. And I think that's true for Hidden Fortress as well. All of the main characters, even that that quasi villain mm. who ends up in a duel with Tashir Mafoon, he gets an arc as well and I love his arc. Uh, I love that <clears throat> I was talking about Dickens and how there's all these like masterminds. We're talking about Star Wars and that that there's this like Darth Vader, this villain character. Mm. Uh I appreciate uh Kurosawa in that he was a lot more uh, morally ambitious mm. than to provide villains in that sort of way. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the bandits in Seven Samurai. They do, they serve that function, but uh, he he wasn't so interested well, even then, in because something... the people that they're protecting yeah. in Seven Samurai, we eventually find out that they've been killing samurai yeah. like, in their town just because they didn't trust them. The, mm. the, the people they're protecting aren't good. Right, they're just right, right. people. So I, I, he does have sort of a very ground-level, everyday approach to morality, something practical, uh, something very uh, pragmatic. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a very Japanese thing, mm. I think, about uh, sort of how dark and light are constantly at interplay. Yeah, that, well, the yin and yang. Th- yeah, this, whole, this idea, I, I feel like a Darth Vader character wouldn't fit in something like The Hidden Fortress. He's too cartoonishly Exactly, evil. exactly. So if you're going to have a villain character... It has to be some sort of equal, even if he's like morally deranged. Yeah, he has to present as at least somehow equal or, in some sort of way, the same as the Mafune character. Well, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because mm. one of the things that sometimes gets forgotten when we talk about the works of Akira Kurosawa is how he was originally received in his own time. Mm. Now we look back at Akira Kurosawa and we think one of the great masters of cinema, like. 
top five. Yeah. One of the all-time great cinematic storytellers. And I wouldn't fight that at all. Mm -hmm. I think he's a genius. But when he initially came out, you know, he didn't come in with that reputation. He had to earn that reputation. And not everything that he did was received with open arms. And, in fact, he was considered by a lot of people to be way more Western in his storytelling than his contemporaries. Mm. And initially, that wasn't considered necessarily a good thing. It made him exceptionally accessible in America and other mm. and, and Europe, which is where his movies really started taking off and earning a reputation. But initially, he was kind of so outside the norm because of how emotional his work was, mm. because of how um, sort of... Melodramatic. Melodramatic it was, visually uh, in, as well. That, fact, was, that was very um, atypical and wasn't necessarily considered positive. Th this goes to an another thing about The Hidden Fortress. This was Kurosawa's first widescreen picture. It yep. was filmed in Toho Scope. It was 239 mm. aspect ratio. Also his first film in stereo. Mm. That's right. So he's like stepping forward. He's doing something really kind of bold and pop mm. at this very point. Very Hollywood. Uh, very Hollywood. And in fact, and I'm not sure if he, uh, he's, Kurosawa has spoken to like what editors he took inspiration mm. from, but The Hidden Fortress isn't edited like a lot of his earlier pictures. It's real fast. Yeah. You know, we talk Brisk. about, yeah, this really wonderful pacing and, and there's just, there's twice as many shots in The Hidden Fortress than there are in another film comparable to its length from another part of his career. Yeah. And uh, that was considered really gauche at the time. This was the late 50s. Widescreen was a novelty still. Uh, the first uh, Cinemascope film was The Robe in 1953, so it's still re a relatively mm -hmm. new process. And if you look at a lot of these early wide, you know, Cinemascope films from the 1950s, uh, first of all, they're gorgeous because they, oh, yeah. they had a widescreen and they were going to fill that fucker. Yeah, and, um, it's kind of like when Star Wars yeah. came out and everyone's super excited to use these visual effects and sound techniques now. Mm. It's like, oh, we can finally do all the shit we wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing with, oh, we can have the screen can be a different shape. It can be that wide and we can. Oh, we can, my God. I'm going to put so many battle scenes. We're going to have like battles and crowds I'm and long shots. I'm going to put dance numbers that go all the way from the left to the right. Yeah, Holy yeah. shit. Uh, it, just the, the way composition was revolutionized just by changing the shape of the screen. Yeah. And uh, but as such, a lot of uh, filmmakers were still high on this idea of locking the camera down uh, and uh, filming these long sustained takes of these broad landscapes or gigantic crowd scenes so the eye could take it all in. Kurosawa, just as aesthetically dickhead thing to do, <laughs> started cutting like crazy in the middle of this widescreen, uh, widescreen photography. Mm -hmm. And the idea was you can't do that. People get con you know, confused. They can't look across this entire vista mm -hmm. and also handle fast editing. And, you know, and he did we, it anyway. We've seen Michael Bay films. We're, we're just sort of used to the chaos now. But yeah, at yeah. the time, this must have seemed like watching a Transformers movie. It's so interesting to think of all the techniques that Kurosawa, if he didn't invent, then certainly helped pioneer and popularize. Mm. One of the things that really blew my mind when I finally saw Seven Samurai, mm. uh, and I think I saw it for the first time in film school, but mm. uh, when I finally saw Seven Samurai and I learned that this was the movie that you can point to and said, before this, people didn't really do this. Mm. Intercutting between regular motion and slow motion. Ah. There would be occasional slow motion, but even then it was kind of rare. Mm. But like it, the idea was it, this would be a slow motion moment. Mm. But the idea of these people are in normal motion, they cut and they see something over here in slow motion, and then we cut back for dramatic effect to build suspense. That was a new thing. Mm. And when you think about all the different things that this this kind of fast cutting, this kind of brisk storytelling, these uh, narrative structures that were not popular at the time, 
Kurosawa was taking big, big chances. I mean, shit, look at Rashomon. <laughs> look at Rashomon. That became like just a storytelling style. We call it Rashomon. <laughs> if anyone After, ever, well, it's, it's yeah. based on a book, but yeah. but yeah, but but when but the movie popularized it, and that's what ultimately kind of counts. Rashomon, if you've never seen it, is a fantastic motion picture about a murder that takes place in feudal Japan, and as they are in, they're reliving the exact same murder from the perspective of different people who are involved: uh, the woman, the husband, the samurai who wandered into it. Uh, and every single time, the story is different because of their perspective. And they all claim to have done it, which is ultra baffling. That one's that yeah. one's super weird and distinctive. But every time you see a movie or a TV show now, where there's an episode or a film or a segment where everyone's talking about how they remember something happened and it's different, every single one of them is ripping off Rashomon. That's where it come from. That's yeah. where it comes from. That's, That's Akira it, Kurosawa yeah. had this huge impact on this huge stamp, and this kind of fast-paced action adventure. He started pioneering that with Seven Samurai, and he was moving on in, no, even um, further in Hidden Fortress. George Lucas has... He says in that uh, introduction that you can find on the Criterion channel and on the, their Blu-ray that uh, the big influence, and in fact his favorite movie was Seven Samurai, yeah. that he liked that sort of fast-paced action. He likes these you know men protecting something for noble causes, how it gets more complicated as it goes along. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of fun at first, and then it gets really serious when you know the battles begin. Uh, it's an awesome film, by the way. It's, it's just, one of the just perfect one, movies. One of the best just movies. see that movie. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's like John Milius is saying you should watch these more Kurosawa films. It's like, oh yeah, and I like this one. And then he saw Ikiru and he saw Rashomon. He's like catching up on his uh, his mm. Kurosawa films. And it wasn't until a little bit later that he saw Hidden Fortress. Mm. And he said he didn't like it as much as Seven Samurai. It's as likable as Seven Samurai. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's definitely sillier. It doesn't have the sort of portent and the drama of Seven Samurai mm -hmm. because it's more about these buffoon characters. It's, it's an adventure. It's an Errol Flynn type movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a... To be... I mean, and I mean this in the most generous way possible. It's a little, it's a lot shallower <laughs> than Seven well, yeah. Samurai. Uh, which is not uh, to say that the film is shallow. It's just shallow for Kurosawa. Shallow for Kurosawa and shallow by design. It's yeah. not like he was trying to say something and it turns out it's not a sophisticated idea. It's just yeah. he didn't want a sophisticated idea in this movie, so he didn't have one. Yeah. Uh, and I, I find it incredibly curious that... He, George Lucas decided to choose the shallower film as uh, a more clear dictator as to what he was to make with Star Wars mm -hmm. than he did the film he liked better and was more complex. Well, structurally, Seven Samurai is actually rather rigid. Mm. It is about a, uh, a village mm. of impoverished people who it's, are being besieged by bandits. It's a, it's they, a remake of A Bug's Life. <laughs> It's it, another. It's it, another. It is, it's another yeah. whole i basic i concept for a movie that has been ripped off yeah. countless times. But yeah, there's people that can't defend themselves. They enlist uh, samurai and Magnificent Seven. It's gunfighters in the Bugs Life. It's actor bugs in Galaxy Quest. It's out of work actors. Yeah, uh, it, but do you ever see Battle Beyond the Stars? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's fun. It's yeah. It's fun. It's the Corman version it's, it's of Star Wars. Low budget Corman version. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's but it's the Samurai, Seven well, Samurai story. That was know. what I was bringing up. Mm. If if uh, Star Wars is the Hidden Fortress, Battle Beyond the Stars was Seven Samurai. Mm. George Lucas had a general idea of the story he wanted to tell. If he wanted to borrow storytelling, more storytelling elements from Seven Samurai, mm. he would have basically had to remake Seven Samurai. The story he had 
And he said this is a coincidence. That it was about a princess mm. and re- pulling her over, uh, you know, rescuing her from the enemy and blah, 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 blah. Mm. That was already there. So borrowing elements from Hidden Fortress made more sense because there were already a lot of parallels. Mm. So I buy that. That makes sense. Okay. Um, and again, the main thing he got was just telling that same story from the perspective of the working class. Mm. Um, so the story... They go off in their adventure. They run through a series of misadventures, some wackier than others. There's this really harrowing bit where uh, they end up in a den of iniquity, and the princess insists that they use some of the gold uh, to buy a woman who is being mistreated as a sex worker. Um, and that woman ends up becoming a really fun character. Like, I really like love her whole journey and how she becomes really heroic by the end as well. Um, and... Uh, but I think my favorite segment, though, is this big action beat. And for me, I feel like the action beat that's like closest to it in like pop fiction is actually the warg fight from the two towers, where they're just going <laughs> on. They're just going along the road. I don't remember a warg fight when they're just like walking to Helm's Deep and they're attacked by a bunch of people riding wolves in the two towers. Sorry, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I, okay. Nothing. Nothing I'm of those, so those mad movies at stayed I'm in my so head. So mad I'm at sorry. you, but that's fine. In any case, the idea is we're just going about our business, and then we're just randomly attacked. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are wandering around with all of their golden sticks, mm-hmm. and a bunch of samurai stopped them and said, "Hey, have you seen a whole bunch of guys like walking around with some golden sticks?" <laughs> and they're just like, "No, cool. Well, let us know if you do." And they run away. And I'm simplifying it, but that's basically it. They they just they're looking for us, and they just run away. And they run into the horizon. These are not the slovenly jerks you're looking for. They run into the horizon, and everyone's just like, well, that was lucky. It's a good thing they didn't turn around. Then they turn around. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute! (laughs) And uh, Toshiro Mifun has to kill them all before they can get back to their camp and reveal their location. And he kills them all like a foot away from the camp. So he's now surrounded by a hundred guys. What a great beat. It's like that scene in Star Wars where Han Solo is like chasing after like two stormtroopers in the Death Star. And then there's oh, like he, a hundred. He, like he runs around a corner and then he comes yeah. back around. And it's kind of like yeah. that, except what happens is when Dasher Mifune gets there, uh, he is surrounded by all of these guys and their general knows him. And they're, they're, they're like respected enemies. That's it's like, ah, it's a shame I missed you on the battlefield. It's a shame I missed you as well. Want to duel to the death? Hell yeah. <laughs> and then they do. And the whole movie stops mm. for a spear duel. The spear duel is pretty awesome. Spear duel is amazing. It's well choreographed. It mm. uses the whole environment. And then Toshiro Mifun wins. Mm. And then he just fucks off. He's like, well, I guess I won. And everyone's like, shit, I guess he does. Um Good luck! <laughs> and they just let him go. Because <laughs> he, he won. Fair enough. <laughs> we have honor. I also think it's worth remembering when we talk about the samurai influence on Star Wars that the original lightsaber duels in Star Wars were based off of samurai fights, yeah. not fencing fights more than anything else. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah uh, the... Uh premise behind samurai sword fighting is you get one shot yeah uh those, if you sword, hit those swords are with the sword you're dead those swords are meant to kill you with the first draw you leave them in the scabbard or you pull them out but you kind of have them down it's sort of like a gunfight in an old western yeah you just draw and you fire one shot and they're dead there's not a lot of this like you'll see in like a three musketeers movie mm-hmm. of this clang 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 yeah, parry pa- thrust mm-hmm. backflip it's not about that. It's about killing your opponent as efficiently as possible. And it makes sense in Star Wars. That's a lightsaber. If it touches you, you're at least losing a limb. 
Yeah, burn, you're probably dying. Like it burns stuff. Uh, yeah. So it made sense, especially considering he was so influenced by samurai movies, that the earlier fight scenes in the original Star Wars trilogy would be significantly more brief. Yeah. Especially in the first movie, a little bit more well, by, in the second. Well, once Luke starts fighting Darth Vader, they get longer because we can't just kill each other. <laughs> yeah, the, there's some really great uh, samurai sword fights in The Seven Samurai. Uh, yeah. Where, yeah, you just sort of you step forward, you take one swing, and the other person's dead, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, the most uh, striking and shocking samurai sword fight that Kurosawa ever filmed was right at the end of Sanjuro. Yeah, don't ruin that one. I'm not going to ruin it. But holy just, shit. Just wait to the end of Sanjuro. And, they had uh, to invent a new <laughs> sword fighting technique for the end of Sanjuro. It had never been done before. They made it up so that they could do this scene. It works. But it's totally new, and it's and it's shocking. You'll remember it's like, it. You'll oh, remember it's it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Such a damn good thing. Yeah. I love that Sandro so much. Um, but uh, yeah, so they 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 go off on their adventures, and they are eventually captured. They're tied up. Mm. They're going to be executed in the morning. The uh, the general who Toshiro Mifune had that duel with returns, and now his face is all scarred. And they say, what happened to you? And he was like, you left me alive after a duel. That dishonored me. Mm. Like, the the people I I work for, like, scarred me up and humiliated me. And everyone hates me because of you. I'm mad. And he's having it out with Toshiro Mifun when the princess suddenly speaks up and talks about everything that she's been through and how she has experienced all of humanity. She sings a song that they learned at this fire festival where they had to hide out for a while. Oh, don't say fire festival. Well... (laughs) Fair enough, but that's where it comes from. Uh Um, And uh, and it's all about how human life, and indeed a bug's life, are equal in the end. Mm. We're all just dying. We all get thrown on the fire eventually. And that just put everything into context with her. And she says, over the last few days, I've lived a whole lifetime. I have no regrets. And her speech is, and the song that she sings, is so inspiring that this enemy general decides to betray his own army and help them escape, and they do. Hmm. What joy. (laughs) What absolute wonder and joy. And then the movie ends with, they have escaped into the right territory. The princess is dressed like a princess. She is in her proper position now. Tashir Mifun is dressed like a proper samurai to the extent that our idiot protagonists do not recognize him. And then they say, okay, so I know we made you carry like two tons of gold, uh, like like 100 miles, uh, but uh, we need that gold. So here's like 100 bucks. Yeah. Like give them like one. Your, your re- <laughs> it's like your reward is a carrot and we don't kill you. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's money. Like it's not like it's nothing. Like they're going to go home and they can probably like buy a house or whatever like that. But they thought they were going to be the wealthiest people in their hometown. They were going to come back victorious. And basically they're going to go right back to where they were. Mm. And at the end they're just sort of like. Oh, fuck it. At least it's over. Credits. <laughs> it's so funny. What a great oh, ending. Gosh, it's so funny. Yeah, and I already said, this is Kurosawa's funniest movie. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm thinking about this, about this because we just recently watched High and Low and sort mm. of its view of what redemption means. Mm. Um, I agree with you in that Star Wars is a bullshit redemption story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is... It, of, of Darth Vader. Of Dar- yeah, yeah. In, in terms of people trying to say, oh no, this these first three films, they're part of this like gigantic trilogy and it's all about how Darth Vader redeemed himself and saving the life of his own son after his own son already said, no, I won't join you. I'm a good man. 
following the events of the first movie where he murdered literally billions just to spite the princess is not a redemption arc. No, I get why uh, Luke forgives him. Mm. Luke is allowed to forgive him. That's his dad. The rest of us, I don't understand why anyone in the audience buys it. He's still but, a yeah. villain. He's one of the great villains in movie history. Yeah, he should, he should have sort of this you know, stinging, tragic end. It shouldn't be yeah. like, oh, and he's redeemed and I like him now. The yeah. problem is I think people like Darth Vader. Yeah. Just because he's scary and cool. Well, you um, want to think that he was redeemable. Wouldn't that be nice? No. Yeah, but I don't think they did the work. Also, you know, you see people, what do, what do you want to dress up as? You know, Han Solo? No, I want to be Darth Vader. The Kid, little, space Nazi? Little, the genocidal maniac yeah. who murdered children yeah, yeah, on multiple occasions I've, I've, by hand? Okay. Little little kids want to dress that way. You, you Again, get Darth I get Vader it. costumes. You dress um, up as the villain and all. I'm not yeah. saying that like you, we shouldn't be allowed to dress up as Darth Vader. It just occurs to me we never really ask the big questions about Darth Vader. <laughs> and maybe we should. So I, I feel like Kurosawa is interested, interested in redemption. We, mm. we saw High and Low, and that is about how a rich man discovers that he is morally empty and over the course of the film learns to start filling himself with something positive. Yeah. Whereas the uh, impoverished character is full of poison from the start. And by the end, he's just sort of belching it all out all, all over our protagonist. Yeah. Um, the original Star Wars isn't really a redemption story, no. but I uh, like who who like Luke grows. He learns that the, the world is bigger. He has nothing and he actually fulfills mm-hmm. himself. It's sort of a wish fulfillment fantasy well, the of a guy who's living in a small town. So it's, you know, George Lucas at story. Be- at the beginning of the uh, film, Luke wants more for himself. He yeah. wants adventure. And in the end, he is doing everything he can to save other people. That's okay, so basically he, he becomes less selfish, less selfish. Yeah. Um, the two slovenly characters, C-3PO and R2-D2, they don't grow. They don't really have they don't, to. They they're, don't change by the end. Well, because they're not bad if, people yeah. the way these characters are. They're not bad people. I mean, they're, they're bad people. They're not great people. <laughs> what, the in, in Hidden Fortress? And it, yeah, they're, they're not. They're, they're greedy assholes yeah, they're who betray not, everyone who's, the, who's they're, ever they're, nice they're to not, them. They're not great people. They're there's not a scene super in this villains. Mo- there's but, a scene in this movie where these two assholes, Matashichi and Tai. Hmm. They are alone with the princess and this woman that they have purchased uh, to, to free her. Mm. And the Mufun has fucked off. He's out on a scouting mission or something. Mm. And they just say, like, hey, leave me alone with the princess for a while. And the sex worker the princess has, has rescued, mm. she picks up a giant rock. And she's just <laughs> ready, like, if you touch her... And you realize, and then the cuts, like there's a long cut and the lighting is different. And she's still got this rock over her head. Like, these guys are not nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay? They they don't but, deserve, like, a parade at the end of this movie. I, I feel like, th- and this is another, I think, you know, we're uncomfortable with this because we like to think of uh, all stories as this sort of Western uh, cleansing ritual where somebody yeah. starts bad and ends good. Uh, or they, they of, yeah. or they start selfish and they learn a little bit by the end. Or they're not a good friend and now they're a better friend. Um, or if they get these, worse, that's the moral lesson we're supposed to yeah, learn. Or there was a fall as well. Yeah. Oh, um, how sad that Darth Vader yeah. fell from grace. Yeah. Darth Vader. Is the, yeah, idea, yeah, it's of the, the idea of, of the prequel Wars. trilogy. Yeah. Uh, these two assholes don't grow or change. In fact, they're not even offered a window into it. Yeah. 
There's no like. Well, I think they're constantly offered. They just always take the other option. Well, they exactly, can just do yeah. the right thing, and instead they there's, always choose to steal the gold, yeah, betray there's, the germaphony, betray the. There's princess. never, there's never like a come, a come to Jesus moment with these yeah. guys. Like, oh, you know what? I'm tired of being selfish. I'm going to take up a sword and fight and you know bravely die for their cause. Yeah, like, they, they don't have that. No, never. The people who get redemption are the people who are already royal and had fallen. So there's mm-hmm. this idea that. Grace is something that you have to work hard to attain Mm -hmm. and work hard to keep. And if you start, I think Kurosawa felt that the human spirit was a little too complex to have one simple story, have somebody start being completely slovenly and end up being sort of godlike. Uh, I'm actually going to, I think there's one element Mm. of this movie that is, that that kind of goes uh, uh, goes against that. Right. And that's the farmer's daughter that they rescue. She is of lowly station. Mm. She's a hero. She goes out of her way. She tries to sacrifice herself for the princess. She actually, yeah. like, she is, like, regardless of caste, she is actually, she is decent and good and noble, mm. even though she is not from one of these vaunted positions yeah. to start with. Uh, that's, so I, okay, think that's she de- fair, yeah. I think she demonstrates that just because you are from... A, a lower class, as mm. we would see in this this kind of feudal uh, a life, doesn't mean you have to be immoral. Mm. There's no requirement, yeah. and I think when you when you portray when a movie only has like one or two characters of a certain type, be it of like a certain class mm-hmm. or maybe a certain uh, gender or religion. Uh, if they only portray one person like that, or maybe two people the exact same way, uh, it comes across as though the movie has a particular attitude about that group of people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it seems potentially incidental. Sometimes it seems kind of as though they're making a statement, and sometimes it's a very ugly statement. But when you have a counterpoint character to that, it yeah, that's kind of just mathematical. It's like you're balancing the ledger, but it really helps. Mm. So in this case, when you have these lower class protagonists who, again, are assholes and clearly like not the best of society, it helps to have someone who is also of a lower station who is noble. And we do have one. So I think that takes kind of the edge off of that a little bit, while still overall giving this basic idea of sort of... Uh, characters who don't need growth. They are kind of are who they are, and you put them in this situation, and they're going to do mm. this. Um, really, the only characters who dramatically change over the course of this film are uh, the uh, enemy general, who does indeed betray his own uh, uh, clan mm-hmm. uh, in order to be with people who he sees as more moral than them. Theoretically, the princess changes because she's been through so much, but we actually don't get to see her in her changed state for very long, so it doesn't really read. Uh, but when we see her at the end, I think it reads perfectly. She's well. more magnanimous, like, yeah, but it's very brief. You see what well, I mean? But, but when we see her sort of like back in the outfit, <sighs> yeah. uh, you know, the, just that visual, I think, is enough. Yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I do think there's a counterpoint to that. Okay, that, that that's fair. I just... Um, I'm trying to suss out sort of the, uh, the morality and the nobility of Kurosawa's thinking uh, and how a lot of Western audiences might see it as kind of pro-colonial and pro-caste system. I think it is kind of pro-caste system. I mean, like, there's not a lot of negativity about... We don't even see... Like, we see the the heroic princess of this clan. We don't see the leader of the other clan being evil or nothing. We don't see them at all. Yeah. 
There's no counterpoint to this. There's, I actually found out. Yeah, there's no Darth Vader. Um, there, there, I actually found out they remade this movie in Japan in 2008. It's called The Last Princess. And I didn't get to see this movie because I actually only just kind of learned about it as I was getting ready to start the podcast. But I watched some bits of it and I read up on it. And when they remade The Hidden Fortress in 2008 in Japan, mm. they added a Darth Vader character. They added like a, a samurai clad all in black with a black mask who's like hunting them. <laughs> I think that's hilarious that how like history kind of works both ways. And like we had to double back and make Hidden Fortress more like Star Wars in retrospect. <laughs> like that's that's yeah. funny. Um, um, so would Star Wars have been the thing it was if it cleaved a little bit more closely to Kurosawa's Japanese sensibilities? In that there's no Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Can you can you imagine it with no Darth Vader? It was I... just Peter Cushing and they and. Well, you know, I guess there was there's like a counterpoint to to Shira Mifune. So imagine yeah, there, there's still of, a duel that takes place yeah. like in the middle of Star Wars between two uh, rival Jedi. It's yeah, just but here it's more personal. Ima- okay, imagine if there's no mask. He has his helmet off, mm-hmm. and he looks a lot like Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, and and he doesn't blow up a planet. He's just sort of doing his job. That imagine oh, Darth the, Vader the like that. The stakes are lower, yeah. and then also there's no Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Which also means there's no Han Solo. We we have because uh, so we have yeah, I guess not. we have the yeah. two androids. Well, again, go, that's basically the original. They go Star Wars. straight to Obi Wan Kenobi. Obi Wan Kenobi is he's a little younger. He's a little more lithe. He's yeah. a lot more dignified, and you know he's not sort of like this. Well, remember he was originally going to be pl- uh, George Lucas wanted Doshira Mifun to play hmm. Obi Wan Kenobi. Little on the nose, but yeah, <laughs> I would have loved it. Oh. It would have been so cool. That's a better movie in my head. Oh, I mean, it, it, Alec, it, it, Alec Guinness is it, the shit. Don't it, get it me wrong. It wouldn't have been the blockbuster it was, I think, but yeah. I don't that's... know. Do you really think Alec Guinness was packing him into the seats? Like, he's a respected actor. He mm. brought a lot of dignity and class to the production, but mm. I think Tashir Mifun would also have been really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. It also yeah, kind yeah. of would have been nice for that movie to be a little less white. Like oh, yeah. a little more multiculty, like right at the beginning, I think would have yeah. been a good thing. White kid grows up in Marin County, California. I doesn't <laughs> only knows other white people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so they go straight to Obi-Wan. He's, he's a more of a Mafune type and mm-hmm. he just sort of gets in a ship. He has himself. They don't have to hire this roguish dude. Mm-hmm. And they, and also and the droids find, are assholes. Yeah. And the droids are, yeah, they're, they're just like <laughs> badly programmed. <laughs> And they fly straight to Princess Leia, where she's been hiding out. And uh, you know Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, she's a you know, she's fine. Scary. That's great. Somebody has to save our skins. She just grabs. She's a bit more. She's a bit more of a badass than this version yeah. of the princess. But, but you know, that's fine. That, that's a fine translation of yeah. the character. She's you know this this badass, and it's just those four more mm. or less who go up against Darth Vader and and uh, and do the the whole run themselves. I think here's the difference and I think it's a big difference with Star Wars and I I I think what we got is better than that. And mm. the reason why is the original Star Wars in particular well, I talked a bit about how there are different perspectives and different contrasts and how every character has their own narrative if you look mm. at it the right way. There are fewer characters in which we are viewing this world. Mm. This world and one of the things that made Star Wars so captivating feels very lived in. So the more characters you have to embody different elements of that world, the stronger it can be. There's a, there's a critical mass you're yeah, you going to hit. You can't more characters. You don't want to have a hundred different protagonists. That would That's, just be ridiculous. But that, that would be the Phantom Menace, is what well, it would be. Touche. But here, you know, we have the princess. Uh, we represent you know positive politics. Uh, you have Grand Moff Tarkin, who's sort of on the negative end of the politics. You have the good wizard. You know, the good spiritual person and the negative, the opposite side of the spiritual person. You have the 
uh, heroic, wide-eyed hero. You also have the cynical hero. Mm. You have a the, lot the, of different... The, the rogue. Yeah, yeah, you have a lot of different perspectives on from which to see the exact same tale. Mm. And I think one of the things that makes Star Wars so strong is you can glom onto any single one of them. And I think if you reduce the number of people in the cast, especially in that original film, it probably still would have been very fun. George Lucas was a very good filmmaker at the time. Arguably well, still is, wor- but you know what I mean. Wor- worked with good editors at the very well, least. Well, he, so. he was making good stuff, obviously. Mm. Um, it, it might have still been very entertaining, but I think it would have been more insular. And I think it would have been less inviting. Mm. And I don't think it would have been as successful. I don't think it would have been as open. I don't think it would have had as many lovable characters to latch on to. It would have been just this kind of small sci-fi men on a mission story. And I think mm-hmm. that's a different beast. So I think we're better off for George Lucas for the, the, having the flagrantly of, ripped off the Hidden Fortress. Well, not not flagrantly ripped it off. Ripped it off and then added a, a big scoop of Flash Gordon in there to make it kind of well, okay. more, he, more he Western off, and kid-friendly and exciting. He ripped off Flash Gordon and he scooped on the Hidden Fortress. Mm. And as we see uh, in next week's episode, Zero, there's a cherry on top of that <laughs> Sunday. And that cherry on top is what we'll be covering next week. That cherry on top is the World War II film Damn Busters. And uh, you ever say to yourself, wow, that that climax of Star Wars is really unique. That whole trench run and Mm -hmm. trying to blow up that little tiny thing and like how difficult that is. And yeah, they lifted that from the movie Dam Busters. So we're going to be talking about Dam Busters next week on Episode Zero. And I'm actually very excited because I've never seen Dam Busters all the way through. I finally get to just sit down and enjoy it. Uh, What a treat that's going to be. So that is coming up on Star Wars Episode Zero. Looking forward to it. Any last thoughts on Hidden Fortress before we move on? Um, I mean, I, I, I just love the movie. Yeah. I, I just love it. Um, this might be his most, Kurosawa's like most accessible film. If you're saying to yourself, how do I get started on the work of Akira Kurosawa? Mm. Just remind yourself that this kind of movie wasn't really being made at the time. And just appreciate just how novel and mm. fun Hidden Fortress is. And yeah. then maybe you can work your way around to the more challenging Samurai films from there. Seven Samurai, and then... then Yojimbo, Rashomon. And he gets really, uh, really kind of... His modern works are much more heady and complex Mm -hmm. and morally ambiguous. But yeah, something like The Hidden Fortress is a great gateway for a young person who just wants a a corker of an action. Well, it's a great gateway to samurai films in general. And I I could dedicate like a whole podcast just to let's explore every samurai movie because it's a wonderful genre it gets really overlooked here in america a lot of people know about some of the big ones seven samurai in particular Mm -hmm. for kurosawa did it a lot of people Mm -hmm. know but there's so many wonderful samurai films samurai rebellion samurai i I actually haven't seen samurai rebellion yeah but uh uh, kill Kill is one of my very very favorites Mm -hmm. sword of doom also starring tatsuya nakadai Mm -hmm is absolutely phenomenal. The entire Zatoichi series is a delight. The entire Lone Wolf and Cub series is like phenomenal comic book storytelling. There's uh, there's a, a series called simply The Samurai Trilogy starring mm-hmm. Toshiro Mifune as this big three-film arc. And um, even some of the more recent stuff. Uh, Musashi Miyamoto, a yeah. famous folk hero. Uh, one of my favorite uh, more recent samurai films is a film called Twilight Samurai, which is... Oh, a, yeah, yeah. You ever see that? So yeah, yeah. good. It's about, awesome. it's about this very quiet... Like mild, you know, like mm. a samurai who just doesn't want to call attention to himself, just sort of living his life, enjoys living peacefully, and he accidentally beats up another samurai in a duel wielding only a stick. 
And now all of a sudden, everyone's opinion of him has completely changed. Great movie. Mm. Really wonderful film. Um, so anyway, please, if you haven't had an opportunity to explore samurai cinema, all of the films we just mentioned are great, great films to start with. Uh, there's a lot of great literature out there if you want to research it more. Um, but yeah, samurai cinema is glorious. I'm a huge fan. Of course, had a huge impact on the more recent Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, as well. Uh, I hope you all check that out. Uh, yeah, so that's it for episode zero this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we hope you get a chance to watch along uh, with us with the Dam Busters for next week, so we can talk about that in depth. Uh, if you want to write into the show, you can write us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We read your emails on a podcast we call We've Got Mail every single week, and that's uh, emails about all of our various podcasts and anything else that you want us to talk about. We're professional film critics. We're also just dudes we'll just talk about whatever you want what's your hmm. favorite what's your favorite weird oreo hmm. got it i mean it's a cliche but the halloween ones that that are orange just and, the orange ones well they did i think they did a pumpkin pie one once so it was oh, pretty tasty fun. for me it's the white chocolate oreos they do at christmas hmm. those are the best the mint ones that they dip in the white fudge oh those are good they have like a billion calories yeah, a piece like do. don't look at the the never any, any Oreos the nutritional that are information, dipped, yeah. if they're dipped, they're the worst possible thing you they're can put di- in your body. They're dipped in solid lard that they somehow made worse <laughs> for you. It's anyway, weird. we'll talk about anything you want. Uh, you can follow <laughs> us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Sidewalk. We are at Critic Acclaim. Uh, if you want to help out the podcast and you can afford to, we would love to have you over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a ton of exclusive content just already waiting for you you sign up and you already have like at least like a hundred hours worth of podcasts about everything from we have a podcast about every episode of star trek uh we're still in the process of that but we're Mm. we're working on it uh we have a podcast uh we're reviewing every single episode of firefly uh we have a podcast we review every single film ever nominated for best picture we do commentary tracks uh the whole nine yards Mm. everything except a podcast about the whole nine yards which we will not be doing. No, we will not. No, I, I draw the line at the whole yeah. nine yards podcast. We did once pitch a podcast called Average Fest, where we're going to sort of <laughs> cull Hollywood history for like the the things you everybody forgot about, including the people who worked on yeah, them. They're not bad. Not bad. They're just, just fine. They're they're fine. Uh, we, yeah. we, we we did our pilot episode on the film Mickey Blue Eyes. <laughs> Remember Mickey Blue Eyes? No, of course you don't. Nobody does. Nobody cares. Uh, uh, but but if, if you watched it, you would be like, that's all right. <laughs> had, had that one gotten quote picked up. <laughs> We do the whole nine yards. We would probably and get the whole to... ten yards. Why not? It'd be fun. Um, <laughs> someone, someone did on our Facebook page. We have a Facebook page as well. But someone did on our Facebook page. They posted a bingo card. I saw it this morning. It's so funny. <laughs> it's full of stuff that we say all the time, including a couple of things that I didn't realize I said all the time. <laughs> but when, but when I saw the square for it's fine. Yeah. I'm like, shit. I say that a lot, yeah. don't I? That, well, you, I've been read. <laughs> Very well done. I feel seen, as they say. Yeah, uh, it's great. So anyway, we got a whole bunch of stuff over there. We'd love to have you over there, and if you can't afford that, we understand. Leave us a review if you can. If you see someone online saying, I need new podcasts, let them know we exist. That would really help. Uh, in any case, most importantly, uh, stay safe, stay sane, take care of yourselves. We're all going to get through this together. No, I know it's a rough time for everybody right now. Uh, so we're going to just keep on keeping on. We're going to keep making podcasts. Nothing can stop us. Nothing. Nothing. So thank you for listening to episode zero, and may the force be with you. Live long and prosper. 
I am a leaf on the...